Amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 5 once more. We'll read a few verses uh, from verses 6 through 11. We left off with those last week. We'll get into the latter half of the chapter um, as we um, make some progress in earnest in this chapter. Uh, we said last week, though, if you were with us last week, if you weren't, just to let you know in case you didn't know, Romans 5 through 8, so we're in Romans 5, we're just getting started with this section, but Romans 5 through 8 might be, and I would argue they are, uh, the most basic and best description of what Christian development and maturation is. That is, if you want to know where your life should be going as a Christian, you've put your faith in Jesus, you believe that he died for your sins, you believe that he is your way to eternal life, not just in heaven, but here on earth, living in the fullness of God. Uh, you believe that Jesus died for your sins, you have trusted him and him as your savior. Romans 5 through 8 are must read chapters for Christians. And I would say that if you are going to read any part of the Bible again and again and again and again, Romans 5 through 8 maybe should be uh, on your itinerary, if not weekly, at least monthly. These chapters are so important. Uh, I, I would say as a Christian, my development or my growth, uh, uh, my sanctification, which is growing progressively in Jesus, um, is more contingent and is, it has been helped more by these four chapters than any other book of the Bible. And not to say that those aren't important, it's just that these four chapters are so rich and they will help you find meaning of other texts as well. But Romans 5 through 8 might just be, and again, I would argue they are, the most basic and the best description of Christian maturation, as in what it means to grow in Jesus, telling us what we have and where we can go. Uh, in the first 11 verses, Paul has unpacked for us, or beginning, he's beginning to unpack for us, and he's revealed to us what is true about us now that we are in Christ, and what is true now that we're believers, where we should be headed as believers. So essentially, if you were to put your own, if I was to put my own heading in this, uh, above this chapter, above these, this section of, of chapters, um, essentially the premise for chapter five and, and on is this. So you've put your faith in Jesus. Here are the basics. So if you want to know what the basics uh, of believing in Jesus, where that's going to lead you, what that's going to do for you, what that should mean for you, Paul basically says, so you put your faith in Jesus, so you're a Christian, now what? Or now here is where you should be going, here is what you should know above all the rest. And right out the gate, Paul tells us about the peace of God and the grace of God. And we spent an hour, or less than an hour, almost an hour last week talking about God's peace and God's grace. Peace is a state of mind that we can have as Christians. A state of mind as in we know God has handled our eternal salvation. We know God has done all this for us, has forgiven our sins, delivered us from sin. What does that do for us in this world? It's such an important thing to know and to talk about. We talked about God's peace, which is a state of mind, and God's grace, which is a position of power. Uh, we, we talk about Jesus being at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father. That, that speaks of the power of God. And we are in Christ. So that means we are in Jesus. We are at the right hand of the Father. So we are in that position of power. We are standing, as verse, as, uh, verse 2 told us, we are in the grace of God, standing in the grace of God, as he says there in verse number two, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we are standing in the power of God that will do something in us or should be doing something in us. Both of these 
the peace of God, the grace of God, um, come from having been reconciled to God and having been restored by God. So we've been brought from enmity with God. Uh, We have been brought from being opposed to God. We have been brought and reconciled to God and we are restored as we are being built back or put back together by God. Both of these reflect God's promises to us through whatever we face in life because they empower us with the resurrection spirit of Jesus, which is what our emphasis was last week. Now, the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans saved the introduction. The first mention of the Holy Spirit is found in verse five, which I think is a pretty big deal uh, whenever you hear something new or about somebody new. Uh, We are introduced to the Holy Spirit in verse five with the reference of our hearts being filled with the Spirit of God as a result of our salvation, bringing the peace, bringing the grace of God is the Holy Spirit of God, God's own presence in our hearts. So uh, it's very important that we know this as Christians. The Holy Spirit is not paywalled behind anything, that every believer receives the Holy Spirit at salvation. Every believer receives the Holy Spirit by faith. He brings God's peace, he brings God's grace, and he works works to activate them in our lives. So the Holy Spirit is always working in the heart of every Christian to, in, to sync us with God's peace and God's grace above every other reality and above every other thing. So in fact, the Holy Spirit is who gives us this new life that we have been talking about. And we know that in him and by him, we can now live differently and boldly especially in the face of what once intimidated and what once dominated us. Now, that's why in chapter 5, verse 3 through 5, Paul makes this very bold claim. So he's talking about God's peace and God's grace and the Holy Spirit bringing this new life to us. And he suggests to us in these verses that we no longer have to be afraid or discouraged or devastated by trials and tribulations even because salvation has prepared us and even has purposed us even in the worst of what this world has to offer. So Paul uses the most uh, extreme of circumstances to emphasize that with the peace of God and the grace of God, we can even come out on the other side of trials and tribulations closer to God. What once intimidated us, what once dominated us, no longer has that power over us because God has put in us a hope that cannot be taken away and cannot be overwhelmed. So as Christians, we have a resurrection hope. And you know what that means? That means we can be put in the ground and put a stone in front of our graves and left for dead. And we have a hope that says we're coming back to life. That's our hope as Christians because Jesus was buried. He was left for dead. He was dead in the ground. And three days later, he came out of his own grave. That tells us that no matter what we face, we have a resurrection hope a hope that cannot be devastated. Now, that begs us, that that begs itself to be put on display in a fallen world. God, as Christians, we should not dread trials. We should not bemoan trials. We should not get frustrated at trials. And of course we do, but that's why James and Peter and Paul says we should rejoice when trials come because we see them as an opportunity for God to make his resurrection power known in our hearts. So Paul immediately wants us to know 
that our salvation has brought us to life. And this is not just normal life that is here today and gone tomorrow. This is eternal life. That, uh, this isn't just about hope when we die, but this is about coming to life now in the face of what has fallen. Now, remember back in chapter four, Paul talked about Abraham. And remember the emphasis about Abraham was that when he became, when he was reconciled to God, when he put his faith in God's promises and was made righteous, his life changed, right? He was 99 years old. He couldn't have kids. He was washed up. Nobody believed that he would ever amount to anything. He was, you know, at the last of his, uh, his, his heritage in terms of he had no kids. He was old, past the point of childbearing years. Yet when he put his faith in God, physically his life changed. He had kids, which changed the world. Just as his life changed physically, our life changes spiritually, which has physical effects. But our life changes by faith in God. Abraham was considered dead, but God brought him back to life. And that's what God does in our hearts when we become a Christian. The template for how Paul defines and envisions Christianity is found in that story of Abraham. What was considered dead was brought back to life. And that is true for you and for me. In Christianity, Paul defines it as resurrection living, that God has given us a resurrection life. So for Paul, it's obvious when, when you consider salvation and what it means and where it brought us from and where we are brought to, Paul says it's obvious that Christianity introduces us and brings us into a brand new kind of living. And in chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, he kind of uh, works through some of the basics of salvation to hopefully convince us uh, of what, we have, what we've experienced and what we have at our fingertips as Christians. So I want to listen to these verses. I want you to listen to these verses. Uh, these are some of the most rich verses you can possibly read and memorize, hopefully. Uh, listen to Paul in verse 6 through 11. And he's using these verses to emphasize what our resurrection life can be and, and should be all about. For when we were still without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see how he defines Christianity? He defines salvation. Now, again, this might offend some people, but Paul says, we're not, we're not righteous. We're not even good. But he's not saying we're bad. He's saying we're dead. Okay, he's saying we were weak in our flesh, we were dead in our sin, and Christ died for us so that we might be saved. And, and verse 9 says, much more, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him, brought back to life. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And again, he's talking about something we experience right now, brought back to life. And not only that, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now, see the emphasis there, we have now received reconciliation not will when we die but now as we are alive but we have been brought to a brand new kind of life now notice in verse 9 and verse 10 Paul uses this phrase much more he loves to use that if you read the new testament just 
Go through and underline sometimes or go through and, and study how many times you see Paul use that phrase much more because he's using that to emphasize what more is available to us or what is available to us in Christ. But just notice the emphasis here. At our weakest and at our worst. Weakest is verse six. Worst is verse eight. At our weakest and at our worst, Jesus has entered our stories. So the devil will tell you you're too weak. You've done too much. You're, you're too far gone. You've, you're, you're too sinful. And, and, and Roman, Paul says that there's no excuses for Christians or there's no excuses. There's nothing that keeps us from the promises of God because at our weakest and worst, Christ entered our stories and has restored us and is transforming us. That is the promise that God has made to us in this text. Now, the question becomes, are we exercising our faith? Now that we know this, now that we know where God wants to take us, is our hope in God producing this sort of reliance on God and this kind of life in us? You see, Paul's made it clear the transfer from death to life we've experienced. He's denoted what God has done for us. And when we were still weak and when we were at our worst, God has entered our story and God has reconciled us and, has, and is transforming us. But really, it all comes down to, are we taking advantage of what is available to us? Now, look back at verse 2. Notice the phrase in verse 2 that begins that verse. Speaking of Jesus, through whom we have access by. Now, I want to make this distinction. Access does not necessarily equal activation. Does that make sense? That just because you have access to something doesn't mean it is activated in you and through you. But this is what's available to you as a Christian. Now, maybe it was not preached to you. Maybe you didn't know, but the Bible has been there the whole time. We, we should know. But Again, we have in front of us what we need tonight, and I believe God's going to show us how we can take, avail take advantage of what is accessible and see it activated in our hearts. Now, Paul remarks that because of our salvation, we can now rejoice in every season and in every scenario of life because of the opportunity we have to live out our faith that is before us. Now, over the next several chapters, Paul is going to repeat some of the basic, some of the same topics in a few different ways. And I think he does that because he's trying, he, he doesn't want anybody to miss out on what is available to him. Because again, just because we have access to it doesn't mean it's activated in us. And a lot of Christians fail to, to, to realize that uh, and fail to realize their faith. Now, I think Paul's motivation can be discovered by remembering what he has talked about for most of this book so far. Remember the first three chapters were all about religion and how religion fails to get us to God and how we often are deceived by religion and therefore we never get to God because we are fooling ourselves with religion. Paul dismantled the, top, the logic of religion being enough to justify us before God in the first three chapters. And he brought us to Jesus and told us that Jesus is the only way to God because only Jesus can reconcile us to God. Now, Paul eventually, Paul knew that eventually even Christianity would be infected by religious tendencies so that people would put their faith in Jesus and believe things about Jesus, but not have that follow through to live out the salvation that has been made available to them. And that's why I think Paul's going to spend the next four chapters making sure we understand, now that you know Jesus, here's what should be going on in your life. Yes, it's a salvation is free by faith alone, but there's so much more available to you. And God, of course, expects us to take advantage of that. So we are made alive in Christ. 
We've learned about this so far. We've learned that we're made alive in Christ. Our lives are changed. We're anchored in God's peace. We're fueled by his grace. We've been filled with his resurrection spirit. So clearly something should be different about us. More importantly, we should have a life in us that we did not have before and it should be a noticeable difference. Now, I think Paul would argue that if, there isn't, if there, this isn't the reality we're living in once we profess Jesus, then he would say, just who did you profess? Who did you put your faith in? Because if you put your faith in this Jesus, then you have access to these and you should be living these out. Notice in verse 9, he says that having been justified by the blood of Jesus, we're saved from wrath through him. Now, remember, we were introduced to the subject of the wrath of God back in chapter 1. And chapter 1, verse 18, you can look at it if you'd like to, but chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is directed towards unrighteousness and ungodliness. Now, we've learned that we must be made righteous through Jesus, that we can't be made righteous on our own, that through Christ we are given righteousness and made righteous so that we no longer live ungodly lives. So the point is, if we've been saved from God's wrath, we're no longer living unrighteous or living ungodly lives, but rather we are living righteous and godly lives. So the focus becomes, and the proof of having been saved becomes, not just what we believe, but what are we doing with the faith? What are we doing now that we believe? Because the proof of believing is in doing. Because we have been justified by the blood of Jesus and that blood leaves us different. It leaves us changed. Again, it leaves us alive and that should be noticeable. That should be, and, and not, not because I'm, I'm concerned with what people think. I'm concerned with what we are experiencing because if we have faith in Jesus, we should be experiencing something Different. So if we have received eternal life, the evidence will be found in our walk, not simply our words. Now listen, Christians, I, I, you know, I know this as much as you know, and I know it more than you probably because I'm, I use a lot of words. Christians are really good with their words. We know the words that we should use and the words that we should say in terms of expressing our faith. We sing the songs, we recite the verses, we you know, confess the things that the church tells us to confess. But the evidence that we are filled with life is not just the words that we use, but the walk that we walk. Now, the the way that we walk. Now, the consistent message in the New Testament, beginning even before Jesus began his ministry, heard from the sermons that his forerunner priest, John the Baptist, who was especially critical of the Jewish religion like Paul was, They were critical of the Jewish religion, of all religion, because religion is more about talking about God and less about walking with and walking like God. And that's why Paul has spent so much time criticizing religion. And I want to show you some verses from Luke where John the Baptist, who's about to introduce us to Jesus, John the Baptist makes it clear that the way they had been doing things, the religion, religious way, He makes it clear that doesn't work. And the reason why I think it's important for us as Christians to hear is because Christians, we can easily drift into that place of religion where it becomes all about our talk and not about our walk, all about our words and not about the way that we live. Let me show you this little snapshot of John the Baptist in his prime of ministry. Luke chapter three. 
John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John was calling people away from the temple to something new, pointing to Christianity, of course. He was calling people to the river where he was baptizing them, a gesture, a symbolic gesture of washing away the old and bringing them up in something new, forgiving them of their sins and giving them life from God. Now, after a while, some of the religious leaders came to hear and see John, and because they were curious, because John was pointing them out and calling them out and condemning them and critiquing them, so they come to see if his message was, what his message was, and why he was so critical of them. And when they show up, listen to John, he didn't hold, he didn't hold back. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That's not a compliment by the way. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, they didn't think that wrath was coming on them. John says, it's a good thing you showed up because the wrath of God is coming for you. Now, these were the religious leaders. If the wrath of God's going anywhere, it's not going to them because they're members of the temple. They walk, they talk the talk. They wear the right clothes. They sing the right songs. Of course, they're saved, right? And John says, it's a good thing you showed up because the wrath of God was coming for you. And now this is a good way to get somebody's attention because they did not expect this. John says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, before you come out and, and I baptize you, because I know what this is going to happen. Y'all are going to come to me and you're going to go through the motions, but you're going to think, well, you know, we're already holier than everybody else. We're already children of Abraham. We're already Jewish people. We don't have to change. We don't have to do anything differently. We already have the right beliefs. And John says, before you ever come into this water, this is about changing your life, being dissatisfied with where you were, wanting something new. And believe me, God can give you something new if you will admit that you don't like what you have. And he says, don't even start with me. We have Abraham as our father. He says, I don't want to hear that. Religion loves to say, well, you know, I'm a member of this or I've done, you know, I went there and I've professed that and I wear that. He says, no, 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 no. Abraham, as your father, God can raise up rocks to be children of Abraham. If it's just about labels and categories and association. He says, no, no, no. He says, even now, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, again, John was a little bit fiery with his words, but these, they, they need to hear this because they thought it was just about their beliefs but those beliefs didn't produce anything. They weren't actually giving them life because they were, the beliefs weren't in, of course, Jesus. Jesus had just showed up. So John's pointing them to something that's actually gonna give them a difference, make the difference in their heart. So John's message is, if the tree is alive, it will produce fruit. If the tree isn't producing fruit, it's dead. And the only thing you can do to a dead tree is cut it down and plant something new. So John has their attention. And they're a little bit startled, a little bit convicted, a little bit troubled. So they ask him, what shall we, what's the word? Do. As in, John's made it clear to them, 
It's not enough to say, well, I, I believe that and you know, I have this you know, association. John has told them that what God wants to start in them is gonna produce life. It's gonna change them. What shall we do? And John says, well, I, was, I can't believe you ask. And for us, our behavior, this is for us, our behavior is influenced by what God has done for us. The nature of our salvation defines our behavior under salvation. So as we hear John tell them what they should do, think about what Jesus has done for us and think about what he's telling them and how what he's telling them is so closely reflecting what Jesus would do for them and what Jesus has done for us because what he tells them to do is so radical and it's almost laughable at what he tells them to do because nobody would ever do the stuff that he tells them to do, yet he doesn't hold back. And what he offers is a preview of what our lives should look like once we come to Christ and once we've been made alive in Christ. Listen to this. He says to the crowds, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. What? Whoever has food, do likewise. Share my food, share my clothes. <laughs> Number one, John, no, uh, I, I worked hard for those things. I'm not gonna give those things away. John says, if you wanna know what you should do, if you've got two tunics, I mean, hey, I, there's more than two days in a week, right? I need more than two pairs of clothes. John says, give your clothes away, give your food away. Now, again, that might sound a little bit strange to you. It may sound a little bit unnecessary, but notice what John is getting at. God is going to do something for you. God is going to give something for you. And it's going to cause you to rethink the way you live your life. God is going to do more than share with you. He's going to lay down his son's life for you. So consider what Jesus has done for you and consider what it should do, what it should cause in you. And, and then the tax collectors come and they say, what should we do? And John says, collect no more then you are authorized to do because the tax collectors have the authority to take a little bit more than they should take. And nobody would get mad at them because they were covered by Rome. And John says, collect no more. As in, even though you can take more, don't. Because your faith is gonna change the way you see the world. And you don't see the world as something you can conquer for yourself, but you see the world as something, you see something more. You see people as more than just opportunities to get ahead. And then the soldiers came. The soldiers came and said, what shall we do? And John says, don't exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. Be content, as in you have the power to be above the law. <laughs> don't use your power for your own gain. Use your power to serve others and exalt others. So again, John is turning the world upside down, isn't he? He's taking what people thought were the standards and he's saying there's a better way, there's a different way that God is introducing to the world. John follows this by saying, you, you may think I'm crazy by telling you to be merciful and give and, and be humble, but just wait. I'm only baptizing you with water, but, he comes, who, but whoever comes after me is baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What I've given you a preview of, again, it's just getting started. It's just showing you what God is gonna do in the world. God is gonna change the way we live. He's gonna redefine our virtues and our values. So the idea that John is getting at here and that Paul has been building up towards is if we have been born again through Christ, we have new desires and we have different, a different nature directing our steps because of receiving the Holy Spirit, reconciling us to God, transforming us by God, having received new life, eternal life, resurrection life, 
everything's different. Paul has defined Christian life, full and resurrection life, as being different than any other state of living. And of course, there's only one other state of living. We'll realize that in a minute. We'll figure that out in just a minute. We've already established that Jesus' death and resurrection makes it possible to step into new life. Maybe it's important that we talk about why it's impossible apart from Jesus and also why it feels so unnatural apart from Jesus. So as we step into the next part of this chapter, we're gonna discover that we're gonna discover the source for our lack of motivation, the thing in you that works against you obeying God. We're gonna figure that out in just a minute. We're also gonna understand even more clearly why Jesus is the only way to God and how there is no other way that we can be reconciled to God apart from Jesus Christ. What we also find in this next passage is that there, again, there is really, there's no way to argue that there's any other way to God outside of Jesus because it's written in stone in these next few verses. Now, in verse 12, Paul's gonna begin making a statement, but he goes on a tangent and he doesn't really finish his statement until verse 17. And, and I'm familiar with that because sometimes I start a sentence and it just rambles. So Paul, inspired nonetheless, starts his sentence and he kind of rambles for a little bit and then he gets back to the point. So I want you to listen to the whole thought that is from verse 12 to 17 and then we'll break it down. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. And then there's that hyphen. And that means he's going to go off on a tangent for a couple of verses. So just bear with me or bear with him. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there was no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many." And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more through those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So verse 13 through 17 is a big parenthetical. Then he says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in the justification of life. Now that's a mouthful, but we're going to break it down, I think, into the simplest way we can because it's so incredibly rich and important that we get this. So I want to focus on verse 12 through 14 first. In these verses, Paul accomplishes two things. First, he traces sin back not to the law, but to the first act of rebellion against God. The Jews thought that sin, the, the knowledge of sin began with the law because the law said you should and you shouldn't. But Paul says the law just made it clear what was and what wasn't right. But sin didn't start with that. Sin started before there was a law. Sin started with a guy named Adam, the first man. Sin started with Adam. So he traces sin back to Adam. 
And then he makes a pretty big declaration that defines humanity before God. He says in verse 12 that through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men and caused all people to sin. So here's what he says. And this is where we've heard this concept, original sin. Adam's breakaway from and rebellion against God altered humanity as a species, that we were made pure and perfect with God. And Adam choosing to rebel against God and breaking fellowship with God so violently altered humanity as a species that it literally broke the entire human race away from God because we were all in Adam when he sinned. As in all of humanity was in Adam because we all came from Adam, does that make sense? We were all in him because we all came from him. We were all in Adam, so when he sinned, we all fell with him. That is what Paul defines about humanity in verses in these verses that we've read. We all fell when Adam fell. Now, that probably makes sense, but maybe there's something in you that says that's not fair. We'll get to that. But we get the idea that you've heard people say we're born sinners. We're born sinners. We inherited sin on a genetic level from Adam. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Well, the fact that God decided to repair the human race in his own, by his own means, that wasn't fair either. So the logic of saying, well, that's not fair, doesn't really apply because God, what Jesus went through was more unfair than what we have went through as a result of Adam's sin. Again, fairness went out the window when Adam sinned. We were in him. We didn't make that decision, but Adam did and he made it for us. So we fell with him. Adam was made, was made to live forever, but sin prevented that. In Genesis 5, verse 5, the scripture says, Adam died, which was never supposed to be stated, was never supposed to be a sentence. Adam died. And, it, and sin that killed Adam would wear at the human race. Eventually, it would wear humanity's lifespan down by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years so this idea of original sin can make it, makes it clear that no amount of obedience on our part can break us free from bondage. Number, more importantly, there's nothing in us that even wants to obey. Beyond that, there's nothing in us that can obey our way back to God. It would require somebody undoing Adam's sin, undoing Adam's rebellion, reversing Adam's curse. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at in verses 15 through 17. He repeat, he says a lot of the same things again you know, in different ways. The free gift is not like the offense. By one man's offense, many died. Much more the grace of God and the gift of God by another man would bring life to many. So what Paul gets at is that there had to be something equal and opposite or even greater than done to undo and reverse what Adam did. So in this text, we, both, we find both an excuse for our sinful nature, we got it from Adam, but also an, an inexcusable reminder that what Christ has done has reversed what Adam did. Now, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we've received his righteousness, then we've received his peace and his grace and his spirit. And we are no longer dead, but we are now alive in Christ. 
Verse 17 defines this new life. Paul says, For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Not just mean, that doesn't mean you'll just make it through, but you are brought to life by the resurrection power of Jesus. Reign refers to prospering, exceeding expectations, ascending to new heights. This is the kingdom living that Jesus preached about. When he came on the scene, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, believe the good news. He's saying that I have come to undo what Adam did. I have come to reverse the curse of Adam. And that is good news. I think that's good news. Jesus said it's good news. Paul says it's good news. It gives us the opportunity to find life and life abundantly. So what we've learned is the rule of sin is defeated. We are taken out of Adam, we are placed into Christ, and God's reign is realized in us. I know Paul's a little bit wordy when he says the one man's offense and the one man's act of obedience, but do you see that? We are taken out of Adam, placed into Christ, the rule of sin is defeated, the reign of God is realized or is available to us. But the key thing to remember is just as one man calls you to fail, one man causes us to rise. You see, it's our nature. It's our nature to live in Adam's sin and under his curse. So if you wanna know why there is something in you that doesn't want to do what God says you should do, it's because Adam sinned and when Adam sinned, you fell and you were born in his sin and you're under his curse. But it's our new nature to live by Christ's obedience. So as Adam sinned and fell and we fell with him, Christ came, obeyed God, took on the curse of Adam, died in our place, rose again to undo what Adam did. So we fell with Adam, but we raise up with Jesus. Just as it wasn't our decision to fall, it wasn't our decision to get up. It wasn't our act that got us out of the grave. It's the act of God through Jesus Christ that brings us back to life. Adam burdened us with sin. Christ relieves us with salvation. By faith in Christ, we can break free. Now, it's important for us to understand this isn't about the effort we put in. This is about the work that Christ did. Back in John's sermon, we heard about the fruit and the trees. If we put our faith in Jesus, we rely on Jesus to bring life in us and through us with his resurrection power. So the message isn't try harder. The message is trust more. The message is not try harder because try as you might, it's not gonna work. The message is this was done for you by Jesus and it requires your trusting in him to be raised up from the grave that Adam put you in. And we will not get out of that grave on our own. By faith in Christ, we are raised up to new life. That's the only way this gift is activated in us. Listen, the New Testament is not men's words. We are held to a very high standard as Christians, but we are not able to meet that standard in our flesh, in our own skin. It is only possible by faith in Christ, alive in us and through us. 
Verse 18, one more time. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all, resulting in justification of life. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. I think that puts it clearer than anything else, doesn't it? By one man's disobedience, we were cursed. But by one man's obedience, we are saved. So we've talked about the standard we are held to, what Christian life looks like, what the Holy Spirit wants to do. We now know that when it feels impossible, that's because in Adam, we're in sin. But it is possible through Jesus in us and through us. Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, in Adam all die, but in Christ, those that are in Christ shall all be made alive. This is not just a little bit of a breath of God. This is the life of God raising us up from sin. So if we are in Christ, then we are alive in him. We are to live through him. Where Paul is going to continue to take us in Romans is that we further rely on Jesus to do for us and in us what we, can, what we came to naturally allow when we were still in Adam. Let me, let me just say the obvious. We don't have to try to sin. You just sin because you're good at it, right? We, when we feel bad, we act like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Yeah, you did. We did. We meant to say it. We meant to do it. We just wish we wouldn't have in retrospect because we have this con- conviction, don't we? We don't have to try to do things the wrong way. And religion says, try to do better. But that is not how the solution is, it comes our way. The solution comes from trusting in Jesus, which means we're going to have to stay in God's word. We're going to have to stay on our knees. We're going to have to get into the scripture and lean on the Holy Spirit who says, just trust me. You see the empty grave in Jerusalem? That's what I can do in you. Trust in him who raised you from the dead. You can't, but God can. In Adam, you died, but in Christ, you will live. The secret ingredient is the grace of God. Remember back at the beginning of the message, the power of God? Verse 20 through 21. The law entered that the offense might abound, that we might would be made even more aware of our sin. But where sin abounded... Grace abounded much more. If you wonder how big of a sinner you are, go read the Old Testament. It's bad. It's real bad. You don't need me to preach it. You can go read it. It's bad. It's worse than you thought. And if you thought that that, if that's bad, go read Matthew 5 because Jesus says, you thought the law was bad. I say, if you thought it, you're guilty. If you want to know how much of a sinner you are, we can talk. But where sin abound, grace has abounded much more. If you wonder, how can I get out of this mess? It's a big mess, yeah, but Christ has given you more grace. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, as sin caused more death, even so, grace can or might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, that God's grace can make the difference in you. Whereas sin is driving you to the ground, grace can raise you up. Whereas Adam's sin makes disobedience natural, Christ's grace makes obedience possible 
and desirable. Desirable. We must come to rely on grace because it is the power of God unto resurrection life. And that's, we're going to get into that in chapter 6, 7, 8. If you think, well, man, i got a lot of work to do. Chapter 6 is going to repeat this. 7 is going to repeat this. 8 is going to repeat this again and again and again. So we're going to get there. So here's where we land tonight. If our faith is in Jesus, then we have been taken out of Adam and we're placed into Jesus. We can't use Adam as an excuse anymore, but that's the proof that we're sinners. We're in Jesus now. So here's some questions to ask. Is your life reflecting Adam or Jesus? More Adam, more Jesus, which one? It's reflecting somebody, maybe both. Is your life reflecting Adam or Jesus? Are you more driven by sin or grace? Is the, is the sin of Adam causing you to sin or is the grace of Jesus causing you to live? Live differently, live boldly, live better. If we are saved, we've learned tonight who we are and whose we are because that's what makes a difference. We've learned what we must do and how we can do it. We know there's better to do but we now know how we can do it. And the first part of chapter five, Paul says, hey, this is the standard, y'all. You're held to it. And the second part, he says, but don't worry. It's not on you to do it. It's on Christ and through Christ that you can. So let's go and show the world what Christ has done. And let's go and show the world what we can do through him and what he can do through us. If you think, man, I need a little bit more than that. Read Romans 5 again and again and again. Those last 10 verses, they're so rich and they're so amazing. That last verse, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Though our sin is great, the grace of God is greater. And the life that we can live through him is much better. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for making it clear to us because we need it spelled out. We need it made clear. We can get confused. We realize that sinning comes easy because sin comes from Adam and we're all in Adam. And Adam's in all of us. He rebelled and so have we. And our desires are not for you. Our nature is not like you. Yet Jesus entered our stories at our worst and at our weakest and Jesus obeyed God for us. Jesus obeyed and lived righteously in the way that we could not. And in his death, he took on the curse of Adam and he buried it and he rose back to life saying to all the sons and daughters of Adam, I have given you a way out of the grave. Adam put you there, but I'm bringing you out. Do you want out? And Father, I pray that everybody tonight would just say, yes, we want out. And we see the way out. We put our faith in Jesus and we know there's a way out. But it requires leaning on and trusting in the grace of God to do what we cannot do and what we don't even want to do. Lord, would you make your grace known to us and make your power felt to us? And would you work in us to make your reign realized and to give us life abundantly? Lord, thank you for the good news and may you realize that good news in us and through us. And we ask all of this and praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen.